Welcome to the Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEO Podcast. I'm Martin Harsberger, President of Measurable Results, LLC, and martinharsberger.com. I'm a retired CEO of both a manufacturing company and a third-party logistics company. We were lucky enough to grow both to eight-figure organizations. I've been consulting with small and mid-tier companies for the past 16 years. Our mission with this podcast is to provide a forum to help CEOs in these critical industries share their stories, share best practices, and learn from each other. If you'd like to be a guest in our podcast, go to www.martinharsberger.com slash apply. Each interview will take about 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this edition of Supply Manufacturing Supply Chain CEOs. Uh, Martin Harsberger, your host. Today, I have Dave Manning, President and CEO of NACPC. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Well, Dave, uh, I know you got some big news, but let's tell me a little bit about your company before the uh, before the news. What sure. are you so NACPAC stands for North American Chassis Pool Cooperative, but uh, we're an intermodal chassis provider. Um, and for those that don't know what that means, it's the wheels that go underneath the boxes that the ocean carriers uh, carry. So NACPAC was founded in 2012 is owned by 11 different motor carriers that pooled together to to form that company. And it was created in response to motor carriers' concern about how the chassis evolution was taking place. Um, Back in 2010, 2011, the ocean carriers started, um, they'd always provided chassis with their boxes prior to that. They started pushing that cost off on motor carriers and importers and exporters and uh, dealing with the leasing companies, they typically had always owned about half their chassis and leased about half their chassis. So they were selling those chassis to those leasing companies. And then when you pulled their box, they just told you you were going to get a bill from the chassis leasing company that they had selected. Motor carriers weren't able to negotiate the price that was being charged or the interchange terms that were being used. And that was unacceptable to the motor carrier community. So uh, the American Trucking Association Intermodal Motor Care Conference uh, was the one that was sort of, you know, looking at this and trying to decide uh, what what could be done. And, and we actually had a consultant come in, Tioga Group, and study. And, and their suggestion to us was, if you don't like it, you need to become a market participant and affect, you know, the direction of the market by being a participant in the market. So um, 11 motor carriers. Um, you know, funded the startup of Knockback in 2012. And we've been, you know, growing since then, providing chassis um, to the intermodal, uh, international intermodal uh, community primarily. And we've, as from the beginning, we've had several things, our core mission. Let me just mention them and I'll answer whatever questions you've got about that. But one was to make sure that whoever's paying for the chassis has a chance to select who their provider is going to be. We call it chassis choice, but obviously that was the primary reason we got started from this. We also felt like that it was time for the uh, international chassis to come into the 21st century from a specification standpoint, radio tires, LED lights, ABS, and and all the other equipment was running bi-supply tires. and They were old enough that ABS laws didn't apply to them. And uh, incandescent bulbs that, you know, when you got stopped on roadside, I always was a light out that the motor carrier was getting dinged with. Um, and then we wanted to ensure there was an adequate quantity of chassis when and where they're needed. And the current providers, it's a supply and demand thing, right? So you don't want too many chassis if you're the provider in many cases, because 
you can control the pricing a little bit better. So all that just sort of distinguishes us from the typical chassis uh, providers that are, in the, that are in the marketplace today. I got you. I was looking at your, and I was going to ask you a question about, <clears throat> you talking about at cost pricing. So you really, your NACPC isn't really a for-profit. For you're just, uh, you're a pass-through to them? Tell me about well, that. Yeah, so it's it it is a for profit company, and you know as we founded it, uh, you can't have a not for profit in a for profit market, right? So because right. that's a that's a market that is for profit, we couldn't do a, a, a not for profit. So it is a for profit company, but to this point, we haven't distributed any of the profits to the those motor carrier owners, right? It's used for reinvestment uh, and buying additional equipment. You know all the technology uh, that we need uh, to be able to continue to grow. So it's not a um, money-making venture for these motor carriers. And we had to go to the Surface Transportation Board to get authority uh, for motor carriers to come together to discuss their chassis business so that there was some antitrust immunity that was provided through a pooling agreement that STB granted uh, to, to NACPAC. It's the same type of authority that TTX has for the rail car environment for the class one uh, railroad. So when we say at cost, it doesn't mean that there's not any margin. Obviously, NACPAC needs a healthy balance sheet, but we're willing to be transparent in our negotiations with our customers about what that margin is and what all the other costs are. I mean, in chassis, how many you want and how you want them and, and the, the uh, quality that you want drives price. And so, you know, we can show them all the different components that comprise the daily rate that they would need to pay. And our margin is one of those components. Gotcha. Okay. I, I was curious about that when I saw that. It's um, confusing to most people. And, and a lot of people confuse us as a, you know, a not pro, not for profit entity. And that's not correct, but that's not the real motive. The real motive is be sure there's, I mean, because so, motor carriers are the users of the chassis and, and large buy. So they, it helps them in their overall cost and efficiency to have a company like NACPAC competing in the marketplace. Gotcha. No, I understand that. I, I just didn't, I had um, Mason uh, George on a few weeks ago talking about the, uh, the uh, okay. reports and so on and talked about chassis. So, and right. actually, I just read the article on on uh, on your acquisition prior to them reaching out, putting you on the on the podcast. And I thought that's a really neat idea, vertical integration. Somebody that leases chassis to get into the manufacturing angle. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about that a little bit here. In acquisition of Pratt Industries. Yeah, it was obviously a very strategic decision for us. Uh, I learned back last September uh, that Pratt Industries was interested in selling uh, their their chassis portion of their company. They operate two facilities, one in Bridgman, Michigan, and one in Niles. We bought the Niles facility and the intermodal chassis uh, provisioning, right? So they'll continue to make specialty equipment and um, particular trailers in Bridgman, but we will do all of the intermodal chassis uh, in Niles. And what had been going on in 21 is demand was through the roof. We couldn't get commitments from other chassis suppliers for a quantity that would come anywhere close to what our customers were requiring. Even the commitments that we got were missing production schedule by three, four, five months uh, in delivery. So we weren't able to serve our customers 
satisfactorily, right? You tell them you're going to have X number of chassis and then, you know, that's already later than they would like to have had them. And then you got to push that back another three or four, five months. You know, it was just a, a, an uncomfortable position for us to be in. So when this opportunity presented itself, we saw that as a way to control our own destiny and being able to supply our customers with the chassis that they need. I saw in your, your press release, you talked about increasing capacity from five to 7,000 chassis. What is that equipment acquisition or what are you, how are you going to do that? Yeah. So, you know, the Niles facility currently has capabilities of four lines of production, but they were really only running two lines and they were running some specialty uh, equipment that they're going to continue to do at a different location. Right. So it's getting rid of some of the okay. non intermodal chassis production that was being done there uh, and converting all those lines. And that's only one shift, right? Four lines, one shift a day. The facility itself can be expanded to six lines. That'll require a CapEx investment to, to do that, but it can be spread to, and then you can run multiple shifts, you know, on those. Now, obviously today you can't just flip the switch on that overnight because the staffing is a challenge uh, and the supply of parts is a challenge just for us to bump from, it was probably closer to 2000 intermodal chassis that they built last year um, to bump that up to 5,000 and then 7,000. We've been constrained with parts, you know, and being able to get the supply of parts. So it's a crawl, walk, run. Um, you know, we are moving in that direction rapidly, but it takes the, the workers and it takes the supply to be able to, to to do that, and both of those are not easy to accomplish. No, for sure, the labor the initiative everybody's having for sure. Uh, how did you get into the chassis business? I mean, it's personally, it's, it's well it's needed. I just wonder how how does a guy move into that? Me personally, though, yeah. So, well, I was the president of TCW um, for what, 25 years, um, 30 years. And TCW was one of the um, supporters of this formation of MacPack. So they were a founding member uh, and, and one of the ones that was really behind the fact that this was something that needed to be done in the marketplace. So initially it was just because I was at TCW, we supported it and somebody had to lead the charge. And, and so I just begun, began leading that charge over the course of the years, that's grown more and more and more as a part of my overall responsibility. In 2020, I retired from TCW and started devoting 100% of my time uh, to NACPAC uh, beginning, you know, about a year ago. So it had already grown to probably half my time was being spent on NACPAC um, prior to that. And then since, so I guess I just kind of grew up as the business grew up, right? It, our our motor carrier supported that approach and through, you know, leading that motor carrier and being supportive of that approach. And somebody had to take the responsibility for, you know, kind of driving the initiative at NACPAC. I wore both those hats for a number of years until now I just have the, the, the NACPAC hat. Right. Yeah. But you picked up a manufacturing arm now too. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly right. Well, that's good. So uh, what, what's your plans for the next three years? I mean, where, where do you see the industry going? Where do you see your company going? Yeah, so 
you know, I, I believe chassis demand is going to continue to be extremely strong um, through those three years. Now, a lot of that's just growth, uh, you know, demand through growth. But there also are a lot of chassis, hundreds of thousands of chassis that need to be replaced that are, you know, 25, 30 years old, have five supply tires. They can either be refurbished or replaced. But in a lot of cases, it makes more sense to replace them than it does to just refurb an, an old, that old of a piece of equipment. So between those two, I think there's plenty of demand uh, for chassis for us to be able to build whatever we can build at Pratt Intermodal. NACPAC won't consume all of that. You know, our, our need is probably three to 4,000 chassis a year. And if we're building seven to 10,000 chassis a year, we'll be looking for some of the current customers of Pratt to continue with us, but I want to do it on long-term commitments. So my vision of how Pride Intermodal is going to operate is that we'll basically have our capacity committed by the time the year starts, not sitting there waiting for a PO to show up. And NACPAC was guilty of doing that. You know, we would sit back and we'd order 2,000 chassis at one time, you know, and the day before we ordered them, the supplier didn't know that we were going to place an order for 2,000, right? So I want, I want more visibility into what that need is going to be from our customers, both, you know, NACPAC customers, and then from the, the Pratt chassis customers. And everybody see this has to be a long-term commitment to make it work. We don't want to ramp up, you know, to five, six, seven shifts, and then have to cut that back because the demand yeah. you know, yeah. drops off temporarily. So we want to find the long-term commitments to keep that capacity at whatever it is, um, for a you know two three year period of time, so there'll continue to be investments that we'll have to make to support that with the facility. One of the things that um, Pratt had already started that we're continuing with is we anticipate in the second quarter being able to bring in some robotic welding that will help us make that step to the next from a staffing standpoint, make that step to a sixth shift or seventh shift, you know, to free up some welders to be able to staff another shift and it will introduce the robotics uh, into the equation. So all the welding won't be done by robots, but if we can do three lines by robots, it gives us some welders to create uh, additional capacity with. I understand your business. I, I don't understand all of it, but uh, you really have pretty a captive audience from a, from a customer standpoint. You don't have to do a lot of marketing or, or, or anything at that point, right? I mean, they're there and they're telling you what they need, which is, which is kind of cool. <laughs> that, that's certainly true today. And, and we think that, I mean, so, you know, what I've said to the Pratt employees is that, that I think this is good for both companies, yeah. right? Yeah. That, you know, for NACPAC, certainly Pratt chassis, uh, Pratt Intermodal chassis gives us a, a certainty of supply and control our own destiny about when we're going to deliver and how much we're going to deliver. And that's, that's important to us being able to take care of the NACPAC customers. But I think from, from our standpoint, what we bring to Pratt Intermodal Chassis that they didn't have before is that market intelligence, right? So we, we know what others are charging for chassis in the market. We know what our customers are demanding this year and next year and the year after that. And so there's some visibility because of that vertical integration that just didn't exist prior to that. So I, I think it's a win-win for both companies in being able to, to work together uh, and share the, the intel, if you will, 
uh, of what's going on inside the manufacturing side and what's going on outside in the, in the consuming side. But I think you're right. Um, we don't believe that marketing is a real challenge for us. Um, what we're looking for is who is it that's willing to partner with us for this two, three-year term and commit to the quantity of chassis that NACPAC doesn't think it's going to need so that, again, we can build a production staff up and know that we can keep that staff busy for a two- or three-year period, that we're not just going up and down and up and down. Well, I think the thing it does, it, it supplies stability to the manufacturing side, too. They're not, not worried about orders. And I got to believe that from a supplier standpoint, we talk about supply chains, but your supply chain ought to feel good because you can commit to long-term requirements, which is a win-win for them, too, where they're not... Ab- Absolutely. And one thing Pratt had always done is they they ordered by PO, right? So they didn't order parts until they had a PO to build a chassis, right? Well, if we know what the production is going to be, and we've narrowed the scope of what we're building too. So there'll be more standard specs that we're building to. So we can order in volume, right? You know, and, and again commit to that volume over a period of time. That, yeah, absolutely helps our suppliers to know what the opportunity is and that it's not a, a flash in the pan, right? That they're not going to exactly. sell a bunch in a month or two and then nothing for two or three months. And then up. So for everybody, when you can level that out some, it just, you know, creates efficiency and absolutely. You know, lets them plan their business. From, from material, but it also helps the supplier because they know they're going to have to deliver X amount every month. And I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, it, I was really interested, like I said, when I read the article about that, man, that's a, that was a great idea. Just vertical. Well, I, I think we can be a good customer for our suppliers as well. Obviously, Pratt has a longstanding relations. They've been in business for a, for a lot of years. So they have, you know, good relationships with suppliers already. But I think that we can strengthen that relationship. And I think we, we can be a good customer for them, just like we need them to be a good supplier. for. Yeah, I, I think there's... And, you know, that, that's what I've said about all this is we're, we're in this to create win-win opportunities. A lot of our competitors in the chassis provisioning business are creating win-lose, right? They're driven by bottom line profitability, short-term bottom line profitability. We're looking at long-term, you know, um, reasonable rate of return. And that's just a, a game changer, I think, when it's introduced to the market at the scale that I think we'll be able to do it. No doubt. No doubt at all. I mean, I, I haven't been on both sides of the manufacturing, both as a supplier and a, and a manufacturer, uh, to see that kind of relationship that stays. I mean, it's pretty cool for everybody. Well, what, have I, what haven't I asked you? Do you want to talk about your company? Did, anything I left out? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's some talk about um, kind of what does this mean uh, immediately? Um ports and other play. I don't think it makes a big impact on the port, but I think that it does um, make immediate impact for our customers, right? So, so the customers that decide to do business with, with NACPAC and Pratt Intermodal will have some certainty around the quantity of chassis that can be delivered, the time frame of when those chassis can be delivered. And obviously Pratt's not building uh, to their schedule either. And part of my commitment and conversations with the existing customers of Pride Intermodal is I can't guarantee you that we're going to fix all that. But what I can guarantee you is transparency to it, right? That, that you'll know what we know 
about, I mean, we can't help it if springs aren't available to put on the chassis, right? There's there are things that are beyond, we can't help if there's another, um, you know, COVID outbreak that, that impacts the ability to, for our suppliers or for us to, but there's things that none of us can control, but you can be sure that we're giving you visibility into that, right? That we're, we're sharing with you exactly uh, what's going on. So I, I think that's, that's the big change in the market. And then there's, there's this whole thing about, you know, how does this differentiate NACPAC from our other, our other competitors? You know, and some of those things we've talked about a little bit, but just kind of reemphasizing those. The fact that we're owned by motor carriers instead of private equity, it means that we have a closer relationship to the end users, those importers and exporters. Motor carriers, are that, those are their customers, right? They're the ones that are talking to those folks every day. And so when we're working on solutions, not only are we focused on what's good for motor carriers, but what's good for the motor carrier customers as well and trying to find those solutions that create efficiencies. It's when we were talking about this whole supply chain issue, but yeah. to the extent that we also can go into a customer and talk about what, what they need. You can't have a discussion today about freight without chassis coming up, right? Every intermodal conversation gets back. Everybody's frustrated with cost and availability and supply and quality and all of those. So to the extent we can understand working with our motor carriers who have those relationships, what the importer exporter needs are, I think it helps us to find a solution for them that, that we might help them craft that solution. Sometimes people don't know what they need till they, till they understand that that's the solution that they're yeah. looking for. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it puts us in a position to be able to do that, which is a total uh, market differentiator. You know, the fact that we're, we're pushing for choice, right. That we believe that whoever's paying, they don't always pick NACPAC when they have choice, right. We don't, we don't win that battle hundred percent of the time. We still believe whoever's paying the bill ought to be able to pick whatever relationship with whatever chassis supplier they want to and be able to do that in the marketplace. And ultimately, I think when this evolution started with the ocean carriers, they felt like ultimately motor carriers would be the providers of the chassis. And that's stuck in a really bad place right now because the ocean carriers have figured out how to subsidize their cost. Right. So, so what happens today is that because there's no choice, they can, get a cheaper price when they're paying the bill from the chassis provider because the chassis provider can make up for that on what they're charging everybody else. Right. We call that a subsidy, but you know, let's say that it costs $12 a day to to supply a chassis. If somebody's getting a six or $7 a day rate, somebody else has got to be paying way more than 12, right? You don't, you don't operate at a loss. You know, people talk about volume discounts, volume discount when you're losing money, just makes you go broke that much faster, right? right. You know, if, if you're doing below price, below cost pricing, somebody's got to be paying way above cost to subsidize that. Well, if choice exists, then you don't know as a chassis provider that you can count on that subsidy, right? You don't know that you can count on that 20 or $25 a day rate to help you give somebody else a $6 a day, right? Because it's choice, right? They, they don't yeah. necessarily, they're not necessarily going to choose you for that. So, that's why we think choice is the equalizer in this subsidy that's taking place. 
one of the things I guess I've learned in, in, you know, about the ports and the supply chain, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't as familiar with the ports as I was as I am today from, from this, but there's just a whole lot of cost pass throughs <laughs> that people aren't seeing at all. That, no. that yeah, that a no. lot of the inefficiencies at the ports and so on are being passed through to wind up being a, the consumer, the end user. It has so to be the end. It's it's one of the challenges of intermodal. Right. And, and, you know, I've, I've preached about this for a number of years, but each of the, the parts of the supply chain and intermodal have a silo mentality. Right. And they only think about what's good for them. Yeah. And sometimes decisions that they make that are good for them creates a problem for somebody else in the in the chain. Right. And usually the truckers are at the bottom of all that. It's railroads and ocean carriers and ports all making decisions. And the trucker just has to has to figure out how to live with them and, and charge their customer to, to be able to, to to come out on top at the end of the day. But um, it, sometimes those decisions aren't good for the product. Right. And, and my argument's always been if, if you're benefiting and the product is suffering, that's a short term situation right that that's not going to last for the long haul because you got to be delivering a product at the end of the day that the customer can depend on and wants and is at a reasonable price and so that that's what causes a lot of these disruptions you know so the ocean carriers decide that it's cheaper for them to run a 16 20,000 TEU ship because it does all of this volume on one ship slow steam it across the water so save fuel and then it arrives well, what in the world supports? That's like five ships worth of cargo that's arriving at one time. Used to be spread out over the course of a week. Now yeah. it all hits at one time. There's not enough people, equipment, space to load and unload all that. The end user doesn't want all that cargo at one time. They want it still spread out over the course of a week, you know, till the next shipment comes in. But solves the problem for one party. And really poor communication about even figuring out how's the land side of that going to work. How's there going to be enough chassis to support that? How's there going to be enough space? Trucker alone. I mean, right? Nope. <laughs> Nobody wants to own the whole picture. They just want to own their little segment of it and let yeah, somebody else figure out. So there's a lot of opportunity for better information sharing, I think. Well, and that's it, one of the reasons we're doing this too, is 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 not, you know, I, I've been with uh, even in manufacturing and logistics for the last 40 plus years and and um, manufacturing without taking the supply chain into consideration without creating some of the synergies like you're doing right now with your customer and your and your uh, manufacturing group I mean it's short term it, it doesn't work and and for all my career I've seen manufacturers beating up suppliers for price and somebody else be you know so Everybody's got to make a living. Everybody's got to be in the transparency thing you're talking about is what's been needed all along. It really well, is. And, and just the same thing, you know, so I think shippers and receivers have squeezed a lot of cost out, right? So there's, there's, it's a lean inventory and they've gotten the low cost provider. And a lot of times low cost provider can't flex up to be able to take care of the, the peak demand, right? We, as a trucker, we go through bids all the time, right? And we wouldn't be the successful bidder, but guess what? The one that was could, didn't have the trucks to be able to, to run. So we wound up getting business, even though we weren't the, 
the low cost provider. But I think that, you know, the, the, the BCOs have to go look in the mirror too. And, you know, they've, when you squeeze margins, there's not investment that's taking place for long-term capacity growth. And that's exactly where we are today, right? Nobody has been able to, to, to grow capacity. So the rails are tight, the ports are tight, truckers are tight, warehouses are tight. You know, nobody wanted to pay for surplus. And that's what we, when we say transparent, we go, look, if you don't want to run out of chassis, you better be talking about 70% utilization, not 90% utilization, right? Yeah, yeah. chassis per day cost you a lot less if you're at 90%. But guess what? You aren't going to have the right chassis at the right place at the right time if you think you're going to, you know, if you're shooting for 90%. Because there's going to be times where that's going to be 110 and the wheels aren't going to be there to be able to support that. But there's yeah. a cost associated with a lower utilization. So if, if you want to protect yourself, pay that cost daily so that you've got chassis available. And because when the peak occurs, nobody cares what the cost is, right? It's just get my stuff moved. Well, pay for it throughout the year instead of paying twice what you ought to because you got yourself, you know, short-sighted and can't, can't, can't deal with the people just don't want to look at the whole picture, right? They only want to look at their bottom line and maybe for that month or for that quarter and not think about, you know, the next year or the year after that. And some of these investments are long-term investments, right? That's why when I talk about Pratt Intermodal, you know, if we're going to grow the the staff and grow the supply chain to support it, I want to know that it's going to be able to stay productive at that higher level. Otherwise, we just need to keep making five to 7,000 chassis a year, consume what we can consume, sell a few others along the way and and move on. But if if the demand is there for 20,000, it needs to be longer than a one or two year blip. Right. Exactly. We well, you know it's there now. Just how long is it going to be there? Right. That, that's the thing. But people got to start thinking, you know, I think what they've learned is you can't just wait till the last minute and expect it to be there anymore. No, that's exactly right. Well, it's, it's been that way for a while. We just kind of, kind of, <laughs> it was, a, was, it was Hope perfect the best, storm, right? right. Perfect storm. The demand wound up being on goods because nobody could go anywhere or do anything. So people were buying stuff that they would have normally been spending on eating out or going to a concert or travel or well, you couldn't do any of that. So all that money got shifted towards goods and the supply chain was already tight and it couldn't, it couldn't absorb that. Right. It just, people kept taking orders, you know, assuming that somebody was going to come up with the stuff, but it, just and then you know having dealt with supply chains all your life that they're they're pretty fragile and you screw them up they don't just get fixed right back right remember the port strike that was what was it 10 weeks or something it took six or seven months to get that all smoothed back out you don't you don't just straighten it back out when it gets bottlenecked i think the uh the the thing that really woke me up with the shipping was when that ship got stuck in the suez canal you looked at the uh Looked at the images, the satellite images, is what was backed up behind it. Holy yep. Moses! I mean, it was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ships backed up there for a week. Which most times we don't think about how fragile it is, right? So it's yeah. so thing. Yeah. So global economy, right? Buy stuff in China, and you can get it delivered here in five six weeks. You know, well that's great as long as there's no hiccup in all that, right? That's but you true. throw a hiccup in it, and you might not be able to, there's still stuff that hadn't gotten delivered for Halloween, right? So 
for Christmas. You, know, yeah. um, it, you just you just don't know. I've, I've said all along that port strike woke me up to the fact of how vulnerable we are. I mean, if somebody wanted to screw us up, all you got to do is blow up our ports, and we'd be hamstrung, right? Well, there's so few of them too. I mean, it's, that's right. That's right. You know, get a, get one, and and you're right. I mean, you never recover from it. Uh, and, it, and it's a long time, you know, to, to rebuild that infrastructure that it takes to do it. But I think what frustrates me is that there also has to be long-term investments. And because everybody had negotiated, negotiated pricing down so tight, people weren't making that investment. No, no that's right. Now we're, now we're, we're, we're suffering uh, the consequence. And I think also there's limitations, right? Ports are, Where's there more land for them to get railroads? Where's there more land for them to get? Yeah, they were they were storing uh, empty containers a hundred miles away from the port out in L.A. because they had no land. Dumping off the streets and nobody wants it in their backyard either. Yeah. You know, in Charleston, you know, they decide that now Charleston's decided that it's a tourist town instead of a freight town, yeah. and so freight terminals have to be out of town somewhere. You know, the ports are considerably. I mean. That's all great, but if you like your stuff, you got to think about how it's going to get there. Well, hopefully, start making some more of it here again. I don't know uh, if we can. Yeah, and I, I think that's obviously you know um, if you want to protect yourself, it, it's boots, it's belt and suspenders, right? And and when people take away your your profitability, people tend to just take more risk and maybe you just go with the belt, and then all of a sudden you wind up in trouble, um, you know, and I think, you know, redundancy is costly, but it, I think we've learned the price that you pay if you don't have that. Well, we're learning it for sure. Well, Dave, I appreciate your time today. How can people get in touch with you? Probably email is the best way. Uh, D Manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G at MacPack.org um, is our email address. That's probably the best way. And I'd be glad to hear from anybody that's more interested in what NACPAC's doing or Pride Intermodal's doing. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and give us a chance to share our story. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. All right. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs. If you're a successful CEO in manufacturing or supply chain that would like to be part of the program, please visit www.martinharsberger.com apply. If you got some value out of the interview, please share it on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you know someone that would make a great guest, tag them and let them know about the show. Again, our mission is to focus on manufacturing and supply chain CEOs. We'd like to share your story and provide industry trends and updates that would interest our listeners. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss an episode, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and interviews go a long way in promoting the show. You can connect with me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Martin Harsberger uh, or through my website, www.martinharsberger.com. Again, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening.